0: Good morning. This morning, I want to talk to you about Hezekiah, who is king of Judah, simply because he's an anomaly. He is a godly king of Judah. That is a rare species, an almost non-existent species. If you've been following along in your daily reading of the Bible in the Old Testament, most of the kings of Israel and Judah, and we've said this before, were wicked. And here we have Hezekiah. He's the one I want you to talk to you about today. Uh, As we've been doing our reading, the majority of the reading in the Old Testament lately has been judgments. And then all of a sudden, we come upon this one king who sold himself out to God without any encouragement from anyone else. I can't resist talking about Hezekiah this morning. He's so important that not only is his history recorded in the history book of 2 Chronicles, along with all the other kings, but Isaiah, the prophet, refers to him in chapter 37. Isaiah stops his preaching to refer to an incident that occurs when Assyria comes to uh, fight against Judah and Jerusalem and Hezekiah is victorious through his faith in God. That's how important he is, even to Isaiah, who is a contemporary prophet during Hezekiah's reign. So I want to talk about that situation from both Isaiah as well as Second Chronicles. So let me set the background for you, that we do have a situation where Assyria, who is the most powerful country in the world at this point, is led by King Sennacherib, who is not only powerful, but he's particularly vicious. He has defeated every single country he has come against, including Israel, meaning the 10 Northern tribes, if you remember in their history, Israel split into two countries, Israel being the ten northern tribes and Judah being the two southern tribes. Assyria has already taken Israel captive and into exile, and now they're moving down to take on both Judah and Egypt. And so Sennacherib leaves part of his army at Judah in Jerusalem um, to the rest of his army. Against Egypt. And we picked that story up in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. I want to read to you the first eight verses. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them to him, for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the waters, water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, "Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water?" He set to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it, and outside it, he built another wall and he strengthened the Milo in the city of David, which is a fortified structure in between the walls. He also made weapons and shields in abundance and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So in this first part, there are actually two sections to this part. There's a preparation section and there's a speech section. There's planning And then there's faith. He plans and he prepares. He builds up the walls. He stops all the water so they won't be able to refresh their troops. He produces all the weapons he needs. And then he gives a speech to all the people. And my question is this. In this story, you're going to find out that God miraculously delivered him so there was not even a battle. So was the preparation necessary? Why didn't Hezekiah just give the speech And then depend on God by faith. He probably shouldn't have prepared. And my answer to that is, no, he should have. He should have prepared. Both are necessary. There are times when we are to do nothing but pray and believe in God. But those are usually times when we can't do anything but trust in God. And I'm reminded of Moses when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt at the very beginning. He's standing at the Red Sea. He has no way to get across. Behind him, the chariots and armies of Egypt are coming toward them. They have no weapons. There's nothing else they can do. And he says in Exodus 14, 13, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. But most of the time, I think our life is better reflected by Joshua the next leader of Israel as he moves into Canaan and the battles he had to fight to take over Canaan, specifically the first one at Jericho. We think of Jericho as a miraculous delivery because God brought down the walls without anything happening. They marched around the city and God made the walls crumble. But Joshua still had to prepare. He had to have an army ready because once the walls came down, there was still an army inside Jericho ready to fight. So the planning and the preparation were just as necessary as the faith. Here at PAC, we are constantly planning while we're praying, especially during COVID. How do we minister to those of you that we rarely have contact with? How do we reach new people that we're not even hardly meeting? How do we do ministry in a time of COVID? We're planning as well as praying because they go hand in hand. Now, the speech that he gives to his people to encourage him is vintage Hezekiah. This is who Hezekiah is. In Thai, we have a phrase called Dua Jing. Dua Jing. It means this is the real person. It's the person you might not know until all of a sudden there's emergency or some tragedy happens and then the real person comes out. Dua Jing we say in Thai. This is the Dua Jing of Hezekiah. He speaks to the people and he raises up their faith. He says, yes, we have prepped for the battle, but this is about God. First and foremost, it's about trusting him. Now, that didn't just happen to Hezekiah on the spot. His faith didn't just appear magically when Assyria marched against him. He had a relationship that he had built up with God over the years. This is being read to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 32. But the three chapters prior to that, the entire three chapters, all Hezekiah is doing is bringing an entire nation back to worshiping the Lord God Jehovah. So he refurbishes the temple and he appoints the priests and then he commands the people to support the priests and then he starts up the daily sacrifices at the temple according to the law of Moses. But he does so with his own contributions of generosity with the animals that he gives there. He reestablishes the Passover. He tears down all the idols of all the other gods throughout the land. He does that through the whole country. He had established a relationship and Duijing, the real Hezekiah, comes out during that speech. Preparation and faith. They go hand in hand, but faith is always primary. Now, what happens? Let me read to you the next section that comes from 2 Chronicles 32, starting at verse 9, that tells us about the challenge. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you? that they may give you over to die, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know that I and my fathers have what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands all at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction were able to deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore... Do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. And do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? Now, as I read that threat, what is missing? What is missing in the threat? A threat. He never makes a threat, right? He never says, if you do this, I will tear down your walls. I will make you suffer. I will kill all your men. I will take your women and children. No threat at all. All he does is appeal to common sense. He marshals all of these undeniable facts. Take a look at reality. Look at us, how big we are, how small you are. Look at what we've done. No nation has stood up against us. Don't be stupid. Just follow your common sense. Do you think that the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem hadn't thought about that already? Is there anything that the Assyrian uh, proclaimer has said that even Hezekiah hasn't already thought about? I can imagine Hezekiah waking up in the middle of his sleep every once in a while with this right at his doorstep saying, what have I done? How could we possibly have victory here? They haven't said anything that hasn't already been considered. But certainly you have experienced the same thing where you know what you're supposed to do or God has called you to do something that may be particularly difficult and common sense sort of tells you you're nuts. You know, don't be stupid every time i changed a ministry in my career this has happened to me when i was in pittsburgh and they asked me to go to thailand to serve common sense told me i was too young i can't go there and do that then when i went to thailand and was there for years and i was working with older country villagers third grade education who were leading their churches trying to develop them as leaders And they asked me to leave that and go to Bangkok and become the field director and oversee all the work of the Alliance in Thailand. Common Sense said, you can't do that. You just know how to talk to these guys out here. You can't talk to government officials. And then while I was doing that as field director, and I was asked when I came home to furlough to get more education, another degree, so I could come back and teach at a seminary, Common Sense says, now you're too old. You can't compete with young students. And then when I was home and they asked me to stay, to pastor at PAC and not go back to Thailand, common sense says, but you don't know anything about ministry in America. You spent your whole life in Thailand. Over and over again, common sense does this to you. And that's what the Assyrians were trying to do. But the Assyrians left out the one factor that always made the difference in my decisions, that there actually might be a God out there who's actually God, who's the creator and almighty. And he's the one that we trust in. And that God is much bigger than Sennacherib. In fact, one person with our God at his back, bigger than any Sennacherib, any of his armories, and any of the common sense that they laid on Israelites. So, what happens next? What is Hezekiah's response? And for this, I'm going to move to Isaiah chapter 37 and read to you. Um, a few verses of Hezekiah's response, starting at verse 14. So Isaiah chapter 37, verse 14. Here's what Hezekiah does after the Assyrian announcer, proclaimer, has walked away and left him with a letter with everything he just said. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. His immediate response is to run to God in prayer. Exactly what he is supposed to do. But what I'd like to do is dissect his prayer. You can break it down into several things that he says here. So let's go through his prayer almost a line at a time. So the first thing he says in his prayer is to God, see for yourself. See for yourself, God. I love the picture of him running into the temple and laying this letter out before God. What greater picture of faith is there? I mean, think about it. For him, God is just like a physical person who's actually in the room with him. On the other side of the table, he lays this Letter on the table says, read that. Come on, you got eyes, read it. That's basically what he's saying to God. What faith. Lots of times we go to God with our troubles and we explain all the troubles to him and he already knows. Hezekiah has faith to know that. He says, there you go, there's a letter. You heard it, you can now read it. See for yourself. Then it's a recognition of who God truly is by just the names that he uses when he talks to his God. He says, You are the Lord of hosts. And that word hosts actually means armies. You're the Lord, you're the Lord of, of the biggest army there is. It's bigger than Sennacherib's, and it's made of angels. You can't kill angels with arrows and spears, right? You are the Lord of all the armies. And he says, You're the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, referring to the Ark of the Covenant, where cherubim were fashioned in gold, and they believed this was in the Holy of Holies, and God sat there between the cherubim. And he's referring to the covenant. You are our God. You've made a covenant with us. We matter to you. And then he says, you alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth which is relevant to the current circumstances because we have the most powerful country, the most powerful kingdom on this earth, who's right at the doorstep waiting to knock the door down, right? And lastly, he says, you're the creator. You're the maker of heaven and earth. Everything that happens down here, doesn't matter if it's a person who knows you or not, you're still in control. You made this and you can control what happens from this point on. A recognition of who God is. And then he says, listen to the blasphemy and see the blasphemer, right? See the man who's talking to you and listen to what he's saying. In other words, what he's actually saying to God, my enemy is actually your enemy, your enemy. He's not mocking me. He's mocking you. But then back to reality, he says, and that enemy, my enemy is more powerful than me. But he's not more powerful than you. In other words, this guy isn't just arrogant. He's not just boasting. He actually did everything he said. He has whipped every country. He has destroyed every nation, including the 10 northern tribes, right? So remember that. And then he makes his request. You ready? Save us from his hand. One line. That's it. Save us from his hand. Of all the speaking there, one line of request, save us. And then he ends up by saying, so all would see that you are God, which is exactly what would happen if he's completely annihilated every nation he's come against. And now he's against this little country of Judah and Judah beats him. Everybody's going to know that the God of Judah really is God. His response is to pray. And I think one of the keys of this story is how quickly he makes that response. He didn't waste a moment. Boom. As soon as this guy leaves, he's got the letter in hand. First thing he does is go into the temple. It's by instinct that he does this, right? It's instinctive to him. This is what he does. If we live in daily fellowship with God, if we live in daily communion with God, we will find ourselves automatically in his presence with our troubles before we even think about it because instinct acts more quickly than reason. But instinct only comes through experience. You have to build that relationship. You have to take time to strengthen your faith. You have to be daily in the presence of your God. That's the man Hezekiah was and that's what he did. So he prays. So what happens? Let me read the result, just four verses toward the end of Isaiah chapter 37, where he says this. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramalek and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Wow. So not a spear was raised, not an arrow was shot. This caused Sennacherib to withdraw. And while he was at his home, he was killed by his own family members when he was in his temple. Now, earlier, Isaiah refers to this and makes a prophecy that's actually recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse seven, where he says this. He's talking about Sennacherib, and he says, this is what God will do. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land, which is exactly what was happening. He returns to his own land, and he's destroyed there. And you may say, well, wait a minute. He didn't return because of a rumor. He returned because he woke up and 185,000 of his soldiers were dead, right? But you have to remember what I said in the beginning. Sennacherib isn't there. Sennacherib left a portion of his army to fight Jerusalem while he led the rest of his army against Egypt. So while he's down there, he hears the rumor that all of his people died, And that's why he returns to his homeland, exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. And it is interesting that even in the annals, the history of the Assyrians, and we have some of those as well, outside of the Bible, they don't talk about this defeat. Of course, they wouldn't to embarrass their king. But in all the lands they'd list that Sennacherib conquered, they never mentioned Jerusalem. And in fact, Sennacherib never again came against Jerusalem, never set foot on the soil of the God that he challenged to come against him and his deities who fought for his people and destroyed Sennacherib. And so we have this double picture, this dual image. Hezekiah Hezekiah goes into the temple of his Lord and finds his Lord to be a very present help in time of trouble. Sennacherib goes in the temple of his God and he is slain and he lies lifeless next to his his idol. And these two pictures of the worshippers and their fates are symbolic of the entire story because Sennacherib dared God to come against him and his deities with all his strength and he lost. The challenge was accepted and he's lifeless next to his lifeless idol. Hezekiah lived on in his temple with his living God. Psalm 115 says this, speaking of idols. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then it says this, those who make them become like them. Sennacherib and his idol. And all this happened because a man prayed in faith. Hezekiah is told that by Isaiah because before Isaiah tells him exactly what's going to happen, these are the words of Isaiah from chapter 37, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, then he describes what's going to happen. All because a man of God prayed with faith. Well, you've probably been reading lessons and thinking about lessons as I've been going through this sermon this morning. And you probably have your own list. I hope you do. But let me help you with three that I don't want you to miss from this story. The first is this. It starts with simply doing life with God. Doing daily life with God. That's where Hezekiah started. Just always being in his presence. Regularly seeking him until it becomes instinctual in your life. It's one of the purposes that we did this year Bible reading plan together so you would get into the habit of doing this early and every single day. Plan all you want as you pray. Plan for your family. Plan for your business. Plan for whatever. But keep that relationship steady and this will prepare you for any kind of challenge that you have. Starts with simply doing life with God. Secondly, you don't want to miss this lesson. Understand the nature of our battle is spiritual and not fleshly. It's spiritual, not fleshly. So when you want to react, look up first. Because it's about God first and foremost in how you react and how you do things. And remember that your enemy is God's concern. If you have God in your life, if you're a Jesus follower, then you matter to him. And your enemy is his concern. And then thirdly, realize that our number one weapon is prayer. And we say that, but we have to practice it. You can't be good at something you never practice. I had to laugh because it's just about two or three days ago. I was talking with my daughter, Stephanie, and talking about Alaska. I was up there at one time, a long time ago, uh, visiting churches in Idaho, Washington, Alaska. And I can't remember where this exactly happened. I think it's Alaska. Um, And she was saying, I remember the story you told me that I went to this church in the middle of nowhere and they took me to the family I was going to stay with was just three brothers. And they were these mountain guys with a house, a log cabin way up on a mountain all by itself. And that's where I stayed in the week that I was visiting that church. And the first conversation I had with them, um, I was talking about things and they, one of the brothers said, I'll bet you never shot a gun. Well, I actually had, but not in a long time, because I don't own any. Um, And so they said, come on. And they took me to the back room. There was nothing but guns. There was guns everywhere, guns on the wall, guns on the bed, guns on the desk, ammunition in every drawer. So they grab a bunch of these rifles and pistols, and we go outside, lots of snow. He takes his trash can, empties it out, takes a bunch of cans, throws them all over in the snow. And we start blowing them away with these guns, right? I was hitting a lot of snow and not many cans at the start. But boy, spending a week with those guys, I got real good at hitting those cans. Can't get good at what you don't practice. Do you really believe prayer is our number one weapon? Well, so what do those lessons mean day to day? Well, in your home, it means seek God together. Now, maybe you live alone, so you seek God early and you seek him on your own. But if you live with a family, seek him alone and seek him together. For your work, start having, whether you're working at home or working at a place and traveling to it during covid Doesn't matter. Have short focused prayers all throughout the day so you're constantly having God in the process. And remember, live your life the way Hezekiah did. Live it real. Live it ethical. Don't give in to the common sense or the easy way of doing things that are not ethical and wouldn't honor God. For church, it means don't get lazy here just because of COVID. Stay involved. Stay connected. And if you can't figure out how, please contact us and we'll help you. Three lessons. It starts first simply by doing life with God. Secondly, understand the nature of our battle is spiritual, not fleshly. And lastly, realize our number one weapon is prayer. Now, because we aren't here often together, um, we're gonna celebrate communion. And as you were told before the sermon started, to prepare anything you want for juice and a piece of bread or rice, whatever you have in the house, so you can celebrate it for yourselves and give it out to you and your family or take it on your own. And I'll lead us in that together now as a congregation. Because for us to be Hezekiah means to be a thorough Jesus follower. And that always begins with a recognition of what he did for us. That we became godly not on our own merits, but because he died on the cross for our sins. That he took away the sin that we committed and allows us to have his righteousness in place of our filthiness. And that was all done to the cross. And so we remember the cross each time we have communion. So if you have it with you now, whatever you have, just pick it up for bread. And remember that as we take this together now, Scripture says that that last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples, that he took the bread and said, this is a symbol. This is a symbol about the death that I'm going to give to you. And it will be a symbol of my body as it's broken on that cross. Take and eat this now in remembrance of me. So let's do that together. And then Jesus took the cup at that Passover meal. And he said, this is a cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that is shed for you that allows your sins to be forgiven. And every time you take this, he said, do so in remembrance of me. Let's take it together now. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your gift to us in Jesus. We thank you for what that gift is to us. It's our life. It's our eternity. It's our righteousness. It's our forgiveness. It's our cleanliness. It's our new life. It's the way that we can follow you. It's the power in our soul. It's the vision to our eyes. Thank you, Father, for the living word of Jesus. And as we thank you for his death, we also thank you for his resurrection. We thank you. We follow a living God just as Hezekiah did. Lord, and we want you to help us to be people of God who always live life with you, who remember that our battle is constantly about the spiritual and not the fleshly, and that our number one weapon is prayer. Thank you for a reminder. May it make a difference to us this week at home, at work, and at church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.